I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my big bag of onions. The government to California, broken hearts and bars unknown. And through this night we'll share a lover On that dark radio How the soul may be so lonely Hands pressed cold against the phone See all the stars The conditions of late capitalism require a certain level of empathy in some contexts, but not in others. This is the dynamic of Goldilocks capitalism. Capitalism eradicates and denies empathy as much as it nurtures, harnesses, encourages, and exploits empathy. Contrary to the common folk narrative of capitalism being cold, unemotional, or unsocial, the worker may find him or herself being increasingly empathetic in some contexts, management, convivial business, personal networking, social entrepreneurialism, etc., whilst also becoming increasingly psychopathic and void of empathy in others, the varying levels of empathy acting as registers of capitalism's organization. But if many individuals are being conditioned to ignore empathy, to remain empathetic for profit, or to feign empathy for vocational requirements, then what is the result of this organization of empathy for the individual? The nature of empathy under capitalism is quite distinct from unregulated or unformatted empathizing. On the one hand, the consumer or worker must have an empathizing capacity. This type of empathy is a flow and it can be exploited. It is an energy that can be siphoned. But the manager, sales assistant, law enforcement officer or doctor must not work with an utterly unregulated flow of empathy.
Wolfgang Beltraki went out antiquing with a list of very particular items in mind. Searching diligently through the goods at a local flea market, he soon found just what he was looking for, a vintage 1920s camera and a few rolls of old film to go along with it. He also picked up some enlargers and trays to develop the film. Beltraki had a bit more difficulty finding 80-year-old paper from the pre-war era, but eventually he succeeded there, too. With his photographic wares in hand, he headed home and studied the items, intent on creating authentic-looking period pictures. Beltraki's wife, Helena, was excited by her creative husband's find and a willing and eager subject for his foray into period photography. Donning what she described as the kind of blouse that grandmothers used to wear and a strand of pearls, she pulled her long hair back, adopted the somewhat dour expression of her grandmother, Josephine Jaegers, and sat up straight at a simple two-chair table upon which rested a cup of tea and a small bouquet of flowers. Wolfgang snapped a few photos of her, careful to include the paintings that hung behind her on the wall, works attributed to masters of surrealism including Max Ernst and Fernand Leger. These paintings and many others were part of a large collection of art that was said to be long absent from the waiting eyes of art lovers everywhere and that would soon be unleashed to the world from the Jaegers collection. We seem to be like flies caught in honey. Because life is sweet, we do not want to give it up. Yet the more we become involved in it, 
the more we are trapped, limited, and frustrated. We love it and hate it at the same time. We fall in love with people and possessions, only to be tortured by anxiety for them. The conflict is not only between ourselves and the surrounding universe, it is between ourselves and ourselves. For intractable nature is both around and within us. The exasperating life, which is at once lovable and perishable, pleasant and painful, a blessing and a curse, is also the life of our own bodies. It is as if we were divided into two parts. On the one hand, there is the conscious I, at once intrigued and baffled, the creature who is caught in the trap. On the other hand, there is me, and me is a part of nature, the wayward flesh with all its concurrently beautiful and frustrating limitations. I fancies itself as a reasonable fellow and is forever criticizing me for its perversity, for having passions which get I into trouble, for being so easily subject to painful and irritating diseases, for having organs that wear out, and for having appetites which can never be satisfied, so designed that if you try to allay them finally and fully in one big bust, you get sick. These are not shallots or leeks or spring onions or chives. These are onions in a big bag that belongs to Bell, so I just remember that. Use 
In the progressive era, the estrangement between intellectuals and power, which had been so frustrating to the reformers of the Gilded Age, came rather abruptly to an end. America entered a new phase of economic and social development. The old concern with developing industry, occupying the continent. And making money was at last matched by a new concern with humanizing and controlling the large aggregates of power built up in the preceding decades. The country seems to have been affected by a sort of spiritual hunger, a yearning to apply to social problems the principles of Christian morality, which had always characterized its creed, but too rarely its behavior. The principles of good government that the gentlemen reformers had called for in vain seemed to be closer to realization. But these principles too had begun to change. The civil service reforms had had a constricted idea of what good government would actually do, and one reason for their small following had been their inability to say very appealingly what good government was good for. Now, in increasing numbers, intelligent Americans began to think they knew to control and humanize and moralize the great powers that had accumulated in the hands of industrialists and political bosses. It would be necessary to purify politics. And build up the administrative state to the point at which it could subject the American economy to a measure of control. Of necessity, the functions of government would become more complex, and as they did so, experts would be in greater demand. In the interests of democracy itself, the old Jacksonian suspicion of experts must be abated. The blower starter. 
We are moving from Boise, Idaho to Rome, Italy, a place I've never been. The airplane hurtles through the troposphere at 600 miles per hour. All the way across the Atlantic, there is turbulence. Bulkheads shake, glasses tinkle, galley latches open and close. When I think of Italy, I imagine decadence, dark brown oil paintings, emperors in sandals. I see a cross-section of a school project Colosseum, fashioned from glue and sugar cubes. I see a navy blue and white soap dish, bought in Florence, chipped on one corner that my mother kept beside her bathroom sink for 30 years. More clearly than anything else, I see a coloring book I once got for Christmas entitled Ancient Rome. Two babies slurped milk from the udders of a wolf. A Caesar grinned in his leafy crown. A slinky, big-pupiled maiden posed with a jug beside a fountain. Whatever Rome was to me then, seven years old, Christmas night, snowflakes dashing against the windows, a lighted spruce blinking on and off downstairs, crayons strewn across the carpet. It's hardly clearer now. Outlines of elephants and gladiators, cartoonish palaces in the backgrounds, a sense that I had chosen all the wrong colors. Aquamarine for chariots, goldenrod for skies. Onion is... As Onion does. Someday you will die But I'll be close behind I'll follow you into the dark No blinding light Or tunnels to gates of white Just our hands clasped so tight Waiting for a hint of a spark If heaven and hell decide That they both are satisfied Illuminate the nose on a vacancy signs There's no one beside you and your soul embarks I'll follow you into the dark Catholic schools, as vicious as Roman rules I got my knuckles bruised by the lady in black I held my tongue As she told me Son, fear is the heart of love So I never went back If heaven and hell decide That they both are satisfied Illuminate the nose On their vacancy signs there's no one beside you and your soul embarks I'll follow you into the dark You and me have seen everything to see From Bangkok to Calgary And the soles of your shoes are all worn down Time for sleep is now But nothing to cry about Cause we'll hold each other soon In the blackest of rooms If 
heaven and hell decide that they both are satisfied. Illuminate the nose on their vacancy signs. There's no one beside you and your soul in box. I'll follow you into the dark. Oh, I'll follow you into the dark. If I were to leave my fire right now, it would take me about a half hour to stomp my way through the thickets of spruce and alder that separate me from the Chetislina River a fast-flowing torrent of glacial runoff that drains a collection of 14,000-foot peaks in the Wrangell Mountains of south-central Alaska. If I tossed a stick into the Chetislina River, it would drift through three miles of narrow canyon before dumping into the cold gray swirl of the much larger Copper River. From there, the stick would flow more or less southward past a couple of small villages and dozens of fish traps that were recently dragged onto the banks by their owners to save them from the crushing flows of winter ice. After dodging past mountains and winding through canyons, the stick would enter the Gulf of Alaska outside of Prince William Sound. As the crow flies, or as is more likely in these parts, the raven, that's about 80 miles from here. Along the way, the crow would cross one two-lane highway and any number of wolves, coyotes, lynx, black bears, grizzly bears, wolverines, mountain goats, doll sheep, and moose. And perhaps a herd or two of wandering buffalo. You're listening to Bill's Big Bag of Onions. Yeah. 
15th of December 2015, Kazakhstan. 1433 local time. Launch, minus two hours, 30 minutes. I was standing 50 meters above the launch site at the top of the glistening Soyuz rocket, waiting to climb inside. It was a gloriously clear winter's day. Looking out over the sprawling Baikonur Cosmodrome and the vast expanse of grassland that was the Kazakh steppe, my senses were in overdrive, absorbing the last sights, smells and sounds of planet Earth before I left for six months. As I climbed aboard our tiny capsule, situated within the nose fairing of the rocket, the vehicle felt completely alive beneath me. Cryogenic fuel was continuously boiling off, covering the base of the rocket in an eerie white fog. This sub-zero propellant caused a layer of thin ice to cover the lower two-thirds of the rocket, transforming the usual orange and green livery of the Soyuz into a dazzling white in the afternoon sunshine. We had enjoyed a close-up view of the rocket as we took the lift ride up to our capsule. With it fully fueled with 300 tonnes of liquid oxygen and kerosene, hissing and steaming within its metal support structure that held it in place prior to ignition, you get a real sense of the incredible engineering it takes to escape the force of Earth's gravity. I've strapped into many aircraft in my career, but I'm certain nothing will ever come close to the exhilaration of climbing aboard a rocket prior to launch. Nobody on the road, nobody on the beach. Feel it in the air The summer's out of reach Empty lake, empty streets The sun goes down low I'm driving by your house Though I know you're not home But I can see you Your brown skin shining in the sun Got your hair combed back and your sunglasses on And I can tell you my love for you Will still be strong after the boys of summer Forget those nights I wonder if it was a dream Remember how you made me crazy Remember how I made you scream Now I don't understand What happened to our love But baby when I get you back I'm gonna show you What I'm made of and I can see you Your brown skin shining in the sun You got your hair pinned back and your sunglasses on And I can tell you my love for you Will still be strong after the boys of summer have gone Shining in the sun 
got your hair combed back and your sunglasses on. If you feel that your shyness has held you back and prevented you from living a full life, you need to open yourself up to all that you've been missing out on because of the shyness factor. Most likely, you felt limited by your shyness and are hoping to find some answers. Fortunately, there are many answers. You're not destined to live a life of quiet desperation on the sidelines because of shyness, social anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, or even autism. The most important thing to remember is to take things one step at a time. You can't eat the whole pizza at once, unless you want to get sick, and overcoming shyness is no different. It's not just about getting over your fear of rejection. It'll go to the very core of how you live your whole life. Statistics show that people who live solitary lives don't live as long as those who enjoy deep and meaningful connections with family and friends. Each step you take to vanquish the fear that is holding you back will add more years to your life and perhaps more life to your years. If you want a more socially active life, and want to be able to have conversations with others, even complete strangers, without wanting to run and hide? Give yourself the gift of human interaction to help you deal with and overcome the pain of shyness. So you should be able to find something that addresses your particular challenges. It's necessary for a full life and second only to food, safety, and shelter when it comes to our most basic human needs. You're listening to Big's Big Bag of Onions. You're listening to Big's Big Bull. Look here, you're listening to Bill's Big Bag of Onions. Oi, oi. They return and the 
I returned to England and waited for winter to go. I spent an absurd amount of time shopping for things for the trip and spent a day crawling around the attic searching mudderingly for my beloved Cumberland Fry maps. I bought nearly the whole European set in 1972 and it was one of the few intelligent investments of my younger years. What am I saying? It was the intelligent investment of my younger years. Printed in Switzerland, with all the obsessive precision and expense that that implies, each Cumberland Fry map covered one or two countries within its smart blue and yellow folders. Unfolded, the maps were vast and crisp and beautifully printed on quality paper. Best of all, the explanatory notes were in German and French only, which gave them an exotic ring that appealed to me in 1972 and appeals to me still. There's just something inherently more earnest and worldly about a traveler who carries maps with titles like Yugoslavian, 1 to 1 Mio, and Schwarzwald, 1 to 250,000. With a stack of K&Fs and the latest Thomas Cook European timetable, I spent long, absorbed evenings trying to draw up an itinerary that was both comprehensive and achievable, and failed repeatedly on both counts. Europe isn't easy to systematize. You can't go from coast to coast. There are a few topographical features that suggest a natural beginning and end. And those that do, the Alps, the Rhine, the Danube, were either physically beyond me or had been written about a thousand times.
At the bidding of unlawful thoughts, the body sinks rapidly into disease and decay. At the command of glad and beautiful thoughts, it becomes clothed with youthfulness and beauty. Disease and health, like circumstances, are rooted in thought. Sickly thoughts will express themselves through a sickly body. Thoughts of fear have been known to kill a man as speedily as a bullet, and they are continually killing thousands of people, just as surely, though less rapidly. The people who live in fear of disease are the people who get it. Anxiety quickly demoralizes the whole body and lays it open to the entrance of disease, while impure thoughts, even if not physically indulged, will sooner shatter the nervous system. Strong, pure, and happy thoughts build up the body in vigor and grace. The body is a delicate and plastic instrument which responds readily to the thoughts by which it is impressed, and habits of thought will produce their own effects, good or bad, upon it. Men will continue to have impure and poisoned blood so long as they propagate unclean thoughts. Out of a clean heart comes a clean life and a clean body. Out of a defiled mind proceeds a defiled life and a corrupt body. Thought is the fount of action, life and manifestation. Make the fountain pure and all will be pure. Change of diet will not help a man who will not change his thoughts. When a man makes his thoughts pure, he no longer desires impure food. Clean thoughts make clean habits. The so-called saint who does not wash his body is not a saint. You're listening to Bill's Big Bag of Onions. Here is a box. Can you guess what is in it today? Join Bill Lawrence, Adrian Cohen, and Ian Tallentire as they open Box 39, an eclectic and unexpected mix of music, chat, interviews, and features. Thursday evenings at 8, here on Colm Radio. Turn 
Argument involves the exchanging of words. But, as we have always known, arguments come in nonverbal forms, in gestures, colors, musical refrains, and above all, in images. What is now called visual rhetoric has been around at least since the elaborate description of Achilles' shield in Homer's Iliad, Book 18, and arguably since the Egyptian hieroglyphics. But is visual rhetoric argumentative in the appropriate sense? Do images make assertions in a way that renders them a legitimate tool of rational persuasion, as opposed to emotional persuasion, which certainly occurs, but is usually thought to be inferior and suspect? The answer has often been no. But J. Anthony Blair makes a good case for saying yes when he analyzes a pre-World War II cartoon by David Lowe depicting an evidently complacent Englishman reading a newspaper sitting directly underneath a jumble of precariously balanced boulders— the boulder at the bottom is marked Checo, and the caption reads, What's Czechoslovakia to me, anyway? The propositional content of the cartoon, Blair explains, is that to regard the fate of Czechoslovakia as having no consequences is mistaken, and the reasoning supporting the proposition is that if Czechoslovakia were to fall to Germany, the other precariously placed boulders labeled Romania, Poland, French alliances, and Anglo-French security would fall down too. How's that for political prophecy? again soon for another journey through the pleasures of music, words, and sound. I'll be seeing you. Bill's Big Bang Onions has been produced and directed by Adrian Cohen and is a company production for Cole Radio.